Today's scripture reading is from John 5, verses 2 through 9. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. Good to see you all this morning. Now, <clears throat> those of you who know me know I'm a bit of a college football fan, and I happen to be an alumnus of a certain state university that's not in the state of, wonderful state of Tennessee, but is a little to the southeast of the wonderful state of Tennessee. And some of you all have been wondering, is he going to say anything? And the answer is no, not going to say anything at all. The first reason is because I don't want to be that obnoxious fan. The second reason is there are so many more important things in life, and we are here to hear God speak to us through his word. Come on, the last thing I'm going to do is talk about football, and the last reason I'm not going to say anything at all is because I serve a congregation in the state of Tennessee, and I know what's good for me. <laughs> so I'm not going to say anything at all. We're going to get right into God's word as soon as I adjust my socks. <laughs> Jesus, help me. All right, let's open our Bibles to John chapter five. And as you're opening, uh, let me just sort of remind you where we are. You know, we, we know we're in the gospel of John, but I want to remind you what the gospel of John is all about. One way to summarize John's gospel is to say, God himself came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And that fact has amazing implications for everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Every person, every corner of God's creation that he is remaking through Jesus Christ and every part of your life. The implications of God becoming a human being and walking among us and speaking to us and demonstrating who God is for us, the implications of that are profound for everything. God did not come into the world just to observe our world. He didn't come into the world just to commiserate with us or empathize with us. He, he, he did do that, but he, there's more. He came into the world to speak and act and move in ways that transform, that bring light into darkness, that bring life into dying places. And so the impact that Jesus had on the world was not just profound, but I want to use another word, disruptive. That's what happens when there's a dark room and you turn on the light. The roaches scatter. 
The room is transformed. It goes from a place of fear to a place of safety. And this is the image that John gives us. He says, Jesus is the light of the world. There's another analogy that I want to use this morning, and it is this little object that we all know and love, the snow globe. Uh, my family and I just had a chance to take a fall break trip to New York City, and this is a snow globe of New York City. Now, if you're familiar with the snow globe, you know what happens when you turn it upside down. But imagine if you were actually inside this snow globe as a tiny little person living in the city of New York City and all of a sudden out of nowhere, your whole world gets turned upside down and gets shaken up. And where did these floaty things come from? Now, Jesus, when he came onto the earth, he acted like it was his to disrupt. And no doubt the disruptions that Jesus made were life-giving, but they were also threatening to people who were pretty comfortable with the way things were before the snow globe got turned upside down. We're going to see that play out in this morning's text. Now, I want you to think about it this way. Jesus didn't come into your world either just to add a little value. He didn't come to say, hey, I just want to make your good life a little bit better. He came to shake up the snow globe. He came to bring life into dead places. He came to disrupt things in you that need to be disrupted. And sometimes that can feel a little bit threatening. So this morning we start chapter five of John's gospel and we get to see the third sign of the gospel of John. And what were these signs? Remember there were seven signs. There are seven signs in the gospel of John. And these are miracles, but they're more than miracles. They're particular miracles that John pulls out and he says, I want you to pay attention to these seven miracles because each one is a sign pointing to Jesus's true identity. The true identity that he's not just a rabbi, he's not just a miracle worker, he's not just a good teacher, he's not just a good man. Jesus is actually God in the flesh. And each one of these signs point to that truth. So the first sign, Jesus turned water into wine. That was an act of new creation. He took H2O, and, and he just, in his own creative power, transformed the individual atoms of that water into something it was not before, into wine. The second sign was last week's text, the healing of the official son. Mike Vogt taught that message last week. And this was a reminder that the spoken word of Jesus alone is enough to heal. Jesus wasn't even in proximity of this boy that he healed. He was a distance away. Just his words spoke. Who does that remind you of? God in the beginning, Genesis chapter one, speaking life into existence. Jesus is now doing the exact same thing. And then today, the third sign. Such an interesting and important text. You've already heard the, the heart of it read this morning. The more I studied this, the more I started to see in this one story of the healing by the pool of Bethesda is the whole world. What I mean by that is everyone you've ever known is in this scene Everyone around us, all of our neighbors and friends, we're all here, even ourselves. We're in this scene. And what Jesus comes to do is he comes to shake things up. He, came, he comes to disrupt this microcosm of humanity at the pool of Bethesda. We'll talk about the text in three parts. Put this on a screen here for you so you can kind of see this. Part one, the pool. That's the first three verses. Part two, the one. Talking about the man, the one man that Jesus healed. And then part three, the reaction 
And that'll be the last part of our text this morning. So let's start off with part one, the pool, and read with me, or read along silently as I read verses one to three of John 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, remember back then there was a, a law in the book of Moses that says every male above the age of 12 would go to Jerusalem three times a year for three festivals, Passover, Tabernacles, and Pentecost. We don't know which of these three festivals it was, but it was one of these three that Jesus comes. He was up in Galilee and Cana is where we found him in the previous text, and now he's going back to Jerusalem. Remember, we said this a, a month or two ago, anytime in John's gospel you see Jesus going toward Jerusalem, you know conflict is going to await him there. It's interesting to think about that. God himself walking on the earth, the closer he steps toward his temple, his home, his natural right dwelling place, the more resistance he encounters. Reminder to us that darkness does not like to give up power. The, the enemy of God, who right now is the prince of the world, does not want to give an inch to the true king as he approaches his throne. Now, uh, interestingly, this pool is quite important archaeologically. Um, for many years, this text was used by some critics of the Bible to say, see, you can't trust the Bible. It, it, it's not accurate archaeologically because there is no pool by the sheep gate. And, you know, this was a problem because we know where the sheep gate was and there's supposed to be a pool, this pool of Bethesda. Where is it? They couldn't find it. And then, lo and behold, guess what? They kept digging and put a picture of it on the screen. They found the pool. Joe, you might have to put this. It's not, oh, I'm going too far. I'm going to let you take over the iPad, Joe. I'm out on this. Put up the picture of the pool, if you will. Okay, there's the pool. Now, what's especially interesting about this pool is it specifically says it has five colonnades. What are colonnades? Colonnades were these pillared walkways. They would put pillars up and then they'd put a roof above the pillars and they would always line their pools with these colonnades to give shade, you know? So we have the same thing today. You know, we have these, you know, beds with the shade that we can sit at the pool or whatever. They had this similar kind of thing. It was these roofed colonnades. The weird thing about this particular pool though was people said, well, it's supposed to have five colonnades and we only found four. When we did the, did the archaeological dig, so then they said, well, the Bible is a little bit true, but the Bible's not exactly true because it doesn't have five colonnades. Guess what? They kept digging. And they discovered right next to the first pool they found, there was a second pool they found, and it all came together to make one large pool, kind of an upper pool and a lower pool. And guess what was in the middle between the two pools? Another colonnade. So there you have five. One, two, three, four, five. Four around the big size, one in the middle. Hard to see in the archaeology because some of what you're looking at are buildings and structures that were built on top of the pool in later years, which is why they couldn't find it. But down there, they found the pool with five colonnades. I, I think that is, is pretty cool when those kinds of things are, are verified. Now, it gets interesting because you ask the question, why was there a multitude of invalids lying around the pool of Bethesda? And, and this is where we, we have to make a comment about the text. Look in your Bible, or if you have your John journal, you can look in your John journal, and, uh, and, and tell me where verse four is. 
There's no verse four. <laughs> they came up to me uh, this morning when I arrived at church and uh, they were getting, you know, getting ready to do the scripture reading as part of the worship service. You know, Elise was going to read the scripture and they said, we have a problem with the Bible. And I said, what's your problem with the Bible? And they said, there's no verse four. <laughs> Help us find verse four. And I said, I'm going to explain that in my message. There's no, there's, there's no verse four. Now, some of your Bibles might have verse four. And here's what verse four reads. And there's probably a little asterisk next to it in your Bible that says, this verse was not a part of the original text. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But here's what verse four says. They were waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Wow, that's interesting. Why did they take that out of the Bible? The answer is, it was never actually in the Bible. At least it wasn't supposed to be. So here's how textual studies work. The older a manuscript is, the more authentic it is, the more original it is, because it's closer to the actual original text. And what we found is we've discovered more and more manuscripts, and you've probably heard the statistics, the Bible is far and away the most verified ancient book ever by a factor of like a hundred, because we found thousands and thousands of ancient manuscripts. And what you realize is the oldest manuscripts don't have that sentence. The oldest manuscripts have nothing about an angel stirring the water. It just goes straight from verse three to verse five. What's most likely true? What's most likely true is verse four was never intended to be in the Bible. It's not in the original. Now, why is this important? Well, what probably happened was as a scribe was, was, was um, transferring the Bible, was copying the Bible, he put a little note in the margin saying, People used to believe that these waters had healing powers and an angel would stir it. And then the next copyist came and they thought that was supposed to be part of the text. So they put it in there and then the copyist after them put it in there. But you can see a clear line when the text did not have this in it. So I want you now to, to realize this with me. It is almost certain that there's no evidence to believe that the waters had any healing powers from God. It was likely just a superstition. Maybe someone had gotten healed there once. Maybe there was something to this. But when Jesus arrives at the scene, he does not give any credence to the fact that those waters are healing. In fact, he's going to point to himself as the healing power, not the waters. And so you have this very tragic scene Jesus comes upon. Dozens of crippled and blind and destitute people are crowding around a pool, competing against each other for false hope. And Jesus knows there's no hope there. Now, I want to pause here and ask, can you see our world in this scene? Do you see the microcosm of humanity here? Can you see your neighbors and friends and your family blind, lame, and paralyzed? Probably not literally, but spiritually, emotionally, relationally. Can you see them lying around pools of water, hoping there might be some stirring of some mystical superstitious force that will bring life to them? What are the healing pools of our culture? Think, think about this with me. I'm actually going to interact and, and ask some of you to shout some things out. Let me ask the question this way. What are things that people in our time and place tend to put their hope in for healing and happiness? 
Money, that's, that's the first one, the, the same one the first service said too that, that initially. Money gives us so much confidence, doesn't it? So much security, so much comfort. We, we will lie behind, beside that pool all day long. Good, what, what's another healing pool of our, of our culture, so to speak? Fame, yeah, the sense that people know me. I'm a big deal. I feel good about myself. I'm healed of my insecurities because I've got some fame. I've got some notoriety or whatever the case may be. What else? Give me a couple more. Addictions. Addictions. All kinds of substances make me feel better for a little while. They, they can be a pool that I can lay around and hope that, hope that it heals me. And one more. Power of success. Power of success. Yeah, 100%. Similar to fame. It's the idea of like deep down inside, I'm not sure if I'm really got what it takes, but when I'm successful at my job, when I'm successful with my family, whatever the case may be, I'm, I feel like maybe I'm going to be okay. Look around you. You'll see multitudes of people crowding around pools, putting their hope in flimsy things that promise life, that promise healing, because we're all desperate. We're all sick inside. So what do we go to? We, we go to self-help trends and we go to entertainment binges and spending sprees and vacations and age-reversing treatments and mood-altering substances and addictive habits. Not all those things are bad. Many of those things are good. I hope a good vacation, you get to have a good vacation every now and then, but we don't put our hope in that. You don't put your hope in healing and your family turning out well, your relationships going well, or you being able to have enough money to be comfortable these are false pools, false places of hope. And so into this scene steps Jesus Christ, this mass of humanity, all waiting around for some miraculous thing that they can imagine might happen to heal them. And Jesus steps into the scene and his attention fixes on one man. And so now let's look at the second part of our text. We'll look at the one. This is the man that Jesus came to heal beginning in verse five. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. There are two things I want you to notice about this interaction. First is this, this man did nothing at all to seek out Jesus. Jesus came to him. This is different than last week's story when the royal official sought Jesus out to heal his son. That happens sometimes too. But in our story this morning, the man didn't even know who Jesus was. And if he had known who Jesus was and he wanted to seek Jesus out, he couldn't have gotten up and gone to find him. This man was not looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for him. And I want you to see in that little detail, pure grace. This is a beautiful illustration of the gospel. This is how salvation works. You don't go searching for God. You don't find him through your own energy and effort and smarts and ability and, and wise thinking. No. 
what happens is you're going on along your life. You're aware of your own need. You're aware of your own brokenness. And Jesus comes and finds you and meets you in your need and offers you what you're looking for. What is the essence of the Christian message? Is it that mankind, after a long time of trying to be good and trying to achieve and, and trying to build empires and find God, that they finally found him in the person of Jesus? Is this the message of the gospel? No. It's that God came to us. Why we were yet sinners. Why we were yet, while we were yet disabled, paralyzed, blind, lying by pools that we thought would give us life. Jesus came to us. This is the gospel. God came into a dark kingdom and the light burst forth. And some of us have seen the light of Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about this theme consistently. God's the initiator. God comes to us. We don't find God. God finds us. John 6, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Acts 16, 14, describing Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention what was said by Paul. 1 John 4, 19, we love God because God first loved us. Why are you here? I mean it literally this morning. Why are you in this building? What stirred in your heart? Or, or who came alongside you and said, you need to be a part of this? Or, or maybe it's because your kids need Jesus and you're here because they're here. Or maybe it's just what you do. Have you ever thought about the fact you're here because God drew you here? If you have an openness in your heart, to Jesus Christ and in, in, in the gospel message. It's because Jesus came to you. Jesus sought you out. And so this is where I want to ask you this morning. Can you see yourself in the scene by the pool as the one Jesus initiated with? The one Jesus came to. If you have found Jesus, it's because he found you first. And if you are searching for Jesus, it's because he is searching for you. And when Jesus finds you, he always asks you this question. Do you want to be healed? This is the second thing in this passage I want you to notice Jesus' question. What an important question. You know, at first when I started thinking about this question, even this week, you know, there, there was some things God was stirring in my heart. Do you want to be healed? Here, here's where I went to. Of course I want to be healed. You know, I can imagine the man, you know, sitting by the pool and Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He's like, why do you think I'm here? But the man doesn't answer Jesus' question. Did you notice that? Instead, he makes it about other people. He says, I have no one to help me. And, and while I'm going, another steps in in front of me. The, the man seems to be thinking, if only someone would partner with me, would carry me to the water where my salvation is, then I will be healed. He may be thinking to himself, perhaps this man who is talking to me now will help me get to the water so that I can be healed. What you start to see about this man is the same place where you and I always start, which is this. 
This man doesn't see Jesus as his salvation, not, not yet anyway. He sees Jesus as someone who might get him something he needs to be saved or get him something he needs to be okay, to be healed. So I was reading commentaries and things like that this week doing research and, and I came across this idea that Tim Keller helped me think about that was really helpful and it's this, we all start out hoping that Jesus, if he gets involved in our lives, will partner with us to make our lives better. That's how we all start. Some of you this morning, you're here and you're like, I don't exactly know why you're here. You're saying it's God. I don't know. Maybe it's God, but mainly I just want Jesus to help me. Like I'm not doing great if I'm honest. And if I had some Jesus in me, that'd be a good thing. That's why most people come back to church when it's been a while. That's why they start praying again if it's been a while because there's some disruption that's come into your life. Something's not working well. And so you say, I just need Jesus coming along and help me with this thing. Help me get the relationship back. Help me get my career back on track. Help my kids so that they're okay, so that I feel about myself because they're okay. And help my marriage get better. Help me get my dream that I've always wanted. I think this is so true. We all start there and many never know anything different other than that kind of relationship with Jesus. What we're really saying when we come to Jesus that way is wholeness for me is not Jesus. Wholeness for me is that vision of my life that I have where things are going well. And if Jesus can help me get that, I want him. In other words, we say to ourselves, what's really going to save me, what's actually going to heal me and make me happy is getting this thing that I want and I'll partner with Jesus if he'll help me get there. We are all like this man. And so this guy thinks maybe Jesus will carry me down to the water because it's the water that's going to heal me. And Jesus basically says, I will not take you to the water because I am the water. And he looks this man straight in the eyes and he says, now get up. Take up your mat and walk. So here's what this means for you and for me. Jesus does not want to be a means to an end for us because he himself is the end. In himself is fullness and life and joy. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I won't help get your career back on track, get your kids straightened out because I want you to come to me. I want you to find life in me, not the hope of what I will give you. The invitation of Jesus is always look to me. Do you want to be healed? The healing is not at the pool. Now there's one more part of our text. We've talked about the pool, the one, I talk about the reaction. And, and in here, the text gets tense and the conflict comes in. 
And I'm, it's a long section, and I'm going to cover it briefly, but there's something important that we need to see. Let's pick it up in the second half of verse 9, which tells us, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In this microcosm of life by the pool of Bethesda, we not only find the desperate, sick, crippled, blind people waiting for salvation, we also find another group of people, the ones Jesus would later call the blind guides of Israel. Blind guides. Jesus is essentially saying, look to see who's actually blind. It's not the ones you think. No sooner had the celebration started with this miraculous healing, the good news, after 38 years, a man can walk. No sooner had that happened than, than these men came in who could not see the miracle because they were so fixated on the rules. I think Jesus knew this would be the reaction of the Jews. Now remember, the Jews is John's way of talking about the religious leaders, the, the, the Jewish police, so to speak, those who are the enforcers of the law. This is Jesus' way of talking about the really, really religious ones. And so I think Jesus knew this would be their reaction, which is why he commanded the man, did you notice Jesus' exact words? Get up, take up your mat, and walk. Jesus knew it was Sabbath, Jesus knew that that was going to get the wrong kind of attention from the religious leaders. And he commands the man, take up your mat and walk. I think what Jesus is doing here is, is giving a subtle invitation to the religious leaders. And, and the invitation Jesus is giving them is this. Are you willing to see the sign? Something new is happening in creation. Remember the signs point to Jesus' identity as God. Jesus is essentially getting these religious leaders to, to, to dare to open their eyes and say, could God be among us? There are things happening through Jesus that only God should be able to do. Might it be God himself working? Could they dare to believe that God was doing something disruptive, doing something new, bringing light into darkness. And could they imagine that that disruption 
has implications for them as well. That their own blindness, which they were blind to, was part of the blindness Jesus came to heal. Here's the sad irony. The most religious people in this story were so sure they were on God's side that they missed God in their midst. Can you see our world in this scene? Can you sometimes see yourself in this scene? Jesus' response is, my father is working and I am working. And did you notice they knew exactly what he meant? He's saying, I am and the father are one, which is why they're trying to kill him. But, but, but listen to the words, if, if you're willing to hear them this morning. My father is working, Jesus says, and I am working right alongside with him. In other words, Jesus is healing Jesus is bringing light to darkness. Jesus is restoring life to dead things. He's doing the Father's work. He's shaking up the world. Do you see the sign? Maybe another question for us this morning is this. Are you willing to let Jesus work on his own terms even when the work he may want to do is disruptive inside of your own heart. Even if you're a little bit comfortable with the way things are, are you willing to let God work? Are you willing to see Jesus as God in the flesh, not a genie in the bottle? Are you willing to be off balance and let him disrupt your heart? In other words... Do you want to be healed? I invite you to think about that question as we watch this scene. Shalom. Me? Yes. Shalom. I have a question for you. For me. I don't have many answers, but I'm listening. Do you want to be healed? Who are you? We'll get to that later. But my question remains. Will you take me to the water? <laughs> Look, I'm having a really bad day. You've been having a bad day for a long time. So? Sir? I have no one to help me into the water when it's stirred up. And when I do get close, the others step down in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> 
So. Look at me. Look at me. That's not what I asked. I'm not asking you about who's helping you, or who's not helping, or who's getting in your way. I'm asking about you. <laughs> I've tried. For a long time, I know. And you don't want false hope again, I understand. But this pool, it has nothing for you. It means nothing. And you know it. But you're still here. Why? I don't know. You don't need this pool. You only need me. So, do you want to be healed? invite you to take out the communion elements that you received when you came in. Uh, maybe you didn't pick one up, and, and I want to say this. If, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to participate in communion with us this morning. Feel free to just go ahead and stand up and go to the back. I'll, I'll talk for a couple of minutes to give you time to do that. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm not trying to call you out or make this an awkward moment for you, but I actually want to give you an invitation this morning. There's a line in that scene that we just watched when Jesus says, you don't need that pool. You only need me. And some of you, I'm telling you, Jesus is saying those exact words to you this morning. And you know what pool you've been lying beside, and so do I, for me. And Jesus is saying, that's not for you. And so we take communion this morning because it's a tangible reminder of who it is that meets our need, who it is that is our bread and, and is our cup. 
And so if you have communion in your hands, I want to go ahead and, and invite you to take out the bread. Just hold it in your hands for a minute. You know, Jesus said about himself, I'm the bread of life. What in the world did he mean by that? What, what he's saying is, I'm all you need. And some of you are thinking, no, he's not all I need. I, I need this relationship to be fixed. I need to be healed. I need to have hope again. I need my job to turn around in my career. Jesus would say, I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm talking about you and me. And would you this morning through faith be able just to look at Jesus in the eye and say, you're who I need. You're my salvation, not a means to an end. You are the end. If you're willing to believe that this morning, this bread is for you. Let's eat it together. The same with the cup. Jesus gave us this symbol. Christians have been taking communion since the very beginning of the church. And when Jesus lifted up this cup with his disciples, he said, this is the new relationship that we have, the new covenant that we have together. And it's in my blood. And what he was meaning by that is, I'm about to die and it's gonna make all the difference because all you're gonna need is me. No more sacrifice, no more, let's get all the rules right and try to make God happy with us. Just receive the grace of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. If you are one who receives that this morning, let's drink the cup together.